the first thing you need to do is you really need to take a step back and say, okay, I accept that this isn't going to happen. And I've got to be okay with that. And then I can learn. I can't rush into learning when I am frustrated that it didn't work. That space needs to be given. And I guess that's the one advice that I would give um, to people who are listening when things don't go your way in innovation is, yes, you need to be resilient. Yes, you can learn for it. But first, just take a little space. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, So this is, uh, I think, uh, going to be a great great episode. And, uh, you know, I I think um, the the reason why I say that is is twofold. One, um, Dr. Ami Bhatt and I have been wanting to do this and uh, we've postponed this so much that now that we, we both have the same energy to to record a great episode, so that's that's why it's going to be great. And then and then two, uh, we've just uh, we've known each other for several years, and um, I think the um, the passion for innovation and the passion for South Asian heart health that we both share, uh, I think, are infective for both of us. So. I think the the energy is going to be infectious, so that's why it's going to be great also. So with that introduction, Dr. Ami Bhatt is today's guest. She is the Chief Innovation Officer for the American College of Cardiology. She is the Director of the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Program at Massachusetts General Hospital and Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. With that introduction, Ami, welcome on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. I'm so excited that we're finally here together. Yeah, likewise. And, um, you know, like I, I said, we've been wanting to do this for a while. Uh, so I'm just going to uh, just get cracking here and, and ask you uh, first up um, about your new role at the American College of Cardiology for that of the Chief Innovation Officer. Yeah, um, so incredible honor, um, wonderful organization. Uh, as you have been, I've been a member of the American College of Cardiology uh, as a as a cardiologist and physician for for many years, and about six years ago, uh, John Rumsfeld, along with Jennifer Bay and a, and a great team at ACC, recognized that it was really important for cardiology to be at the forefront of how healthcare was going to change, and that was really um, set up by the concept that there was a digital transformation of healthcare that was coming. And cardiology was likely going to be one of the places that was going to move in that direction first. And so they wanted us to be ready for it. And when I say us, that us is a broad us, that it includes the patients, it includes the caregivers, but also includes the health systems, the payers, all the different stakeholders in cardiovascular care. And none of us were particularly ready for the idea of the digital transformation of healthcare, nor did we fully understand what that phrase meant. And we can get into that in a minute. Um, and so this program was started six years ago, and there was a lot of uh, infrastructure building at the ACC for innovation that went into it first. Uh, and then John Rumsfeld, my predecessor, um, in July of last year, uh, moved on to a new position. And that allowed us to... Uh, you know, start to think about who's the next person. And I was fortunate uh, to be the one who's able to now join the team and uh, think about what does innovation mean going forward? What what they didn't know 
was that COVID was coming, was that we would have a uh, pandemic that would change the way we needed to deliver care and would really accelerate our opportunity for the digital transformation of healthcare. And so um, oddly enough, when I stepped into this role, I stepped in in an accelerated model that really in six years probably wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for for what's happened the world over. Yeah. So, um, yeah, in, in crisis, there's opportunity, as they say. And, um, you know, what bigger crisis than the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, so I'm going to ask you more about, um, you know, innovation within the ACC. But before, before I even get there, um, and, you know, we were talking about this innovation um, is tough, you know, as as um, magnetic as the word is. Um, I, I think uh, delivering and doing innovation is not easy. And I, could you talk to us a little bit about about that? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's funny. Yesterday, uh, I had the opportunity to present at the AATS, and uh, the thoracic surgery um, uh, group had brought Malcolm Gladwell as their keynote speaker. Um, and, and he talked about three characteristics of innovators. Uh, and it's probably a great time to share this because I didn't realize this is, you know, perhaps what I, you and others are. So the first thing he said was creativity. One characteristic of an innovator is to be creative. And the second is to be conscientious. Interestingly, you don't often find creativity and conscientiousness in the same individual, right? Because oftentimes we're so conscientious, we're so focused on things that we're just in that line trying to get things done and not looking up and around. And that's okay. And other times we're being incredibly creative, but really just letting ideas flow, perhaps without focus. And so being creative and conscientious together, essential. And then he added the third word, disagreeable. And by disagreeable, he meant they do not require the approval of their peers to do what they believe is correct. And, and I laughed because it's not necessarily a compliment the word disagreeable. And yet in this case, it was because it's this idea that I know this is going to be good. And I see that we may not see that right away. There may be a long train to this before we see that productivity come out of this, but it's the right thing to do. And I think most innovators, like yourself and others, recognize that, that there are some times where it's not going to be easy. We might get it wrong. Wrong doesn't mean it's over. Wrong doesn't mean we put it aside. Wrong just means we iterate on it. We change, we change tax, we change courses, or sometimes we sunset it and try something different. But it's still a learning process. But you have to have faith that you need to keep going, even when perhaps the rest of your community your culture says, oh, I don't really know. Why are you trying this? And so I think that's a big part of it. Um, I don't know if, if you know. So I, I started doing telemedicine back in 2013. And uh, when I started in 2013, uh, the only other people doing it at that time at our institution were for stroke. It was for stroke at a distance to have a video link to be able to help someone manage really and, you know, save a life. And I had a very different problem at that time, which is Adults with congenital heart disease were generally um, younger patients who lived very far away from the major city. And uh, it was just too much, you know, uh, kids, job, travel in, cost, and kind of maybe not wanting to know what comes next, right? Just a little bit of denial. And so with that in mind, 
I thought, gee, um, I need to do something to reach out to these people. Can I please borrow that telemedicine vir virtual visit thing you're doing? I want a video with my patients. And I started in 2013 and I tried to get friends on board to do it with me. And I got a total of seven people over the next seven years to join me. And maybe each of them did it once and mostly because it was a snowstorm in Boston. So disagreeable really is something that I related to, which is I just kept doing it because I was pretty sure it was right. Definitely for my patients, tried to get others on board and nobody per se made fun of me. They just didn't really think that I was necessarily right or if it was right for them and didn't do that until COVID came. And then all of a sudden, you know, things change and people said, you know, where, where is that doctor? Um, I think we need her here. And that happened to a lot of us who are in the digital health space. So creativity, conscientiousness, um, and then this idea of, of being disagreeable or the way I like to think about it, of really knowing what you think might be best and being willing to go out on a limb for it. Yeah, no, that's beautifully said. Thank you for sharing that with me. I, I could not agree more. And it's it's so eloquently put together. Uh, you know, those three words are are truly what innovators are made of. And, you know, I, I think, um, you know, well, kudos to you for, you know, uh, having the belief in telemedicine because, you know, that that became the uh, modality for administering medicine for the past three years during the pandemic, as, as all of us know. Um, and, um, you know, so you were conscientiously creative and yet disagreeable uh, with, with your peers. Uh, and, you know, here you have, uh, the universe uh, telling you that this was the right thing to do uh, by getting us all amidst the, the pandemic. Uh, so moving on, um, with the American College of Cardiology, you know, who I, uh, I sort of identified this organization with being forward thinking, being cutting edge, trying to break new ground, you know, whether you know, for example, giving me the platform to talk about parallax at the at the scientific sessions, uh, or even talk about you know my poetry, which which followed the next day, uh, or you know having a position for someone like yourself to become the chief innovation officer and, and driving the the digital transformation of medicine. What does innovation look like at ACC, and and how how do you do innovation at ACC? What are some of the ingredients for innovation at ACC? So I think the first thing is, you know, um, we have innovation in our vision statement, if you will. So so we really say um, that to us, the most important thing is, is we create an environment where innovation and knowledge are going to be what improve cardiovascular care. And, and I think that's really important. Innovation is not limited to the chief innovation officer or to a certain section. But that's how the whole organization runs. Um, and, and that's why, you know, we were so honored to have you there and to think about poetry and to think about podcasting and interviewing each other and taking on the challenging subject matter. And when we think about that, that's because that's something that's necessary for the caregivers, right, for the clinicians to be able to process, to be able to then be their best for the patients. So it all comes back to the patient at the center, but we realize that everybody needs to be healthy. And I think that I consider that an innovative approach to medicine. Um, specifically, when we think about digital health in the area that I'm in, 
Um, and, and I will give a shout out to education. I spent many years on the education committees at the American College of Cardiology. And, and boy, you know, they really kind of allowed us to push innovation and think of how people learn and how we teach and what that means. And so that really, I think, got a lot of my innovative juices flowing. Specifically for digital health, um, I think we recognized a few things. And this was um, early on, six years ago, uh, we put our, our mark down and said that virtual cardiac care, that remote monitoring, which we'd already been doing, but kind of extending to digital wearables, and then data and the analytics involved, that those three areas were going to be important. But mind you, again, this was six years ago that the ACC decided that virtual care, remote monitoring, and the use of analytics or artificial intelligence were going to be important. Um, and so what foresight to recognize, even though we weren't there yet, that that was coming. And then again, it was accelerated and it came. But I think if you look ahead, the one thing I'm very careful about, and I think the ACC in general is too, and, and many innovative organizations, is not to make each of those an independent standing item. Where you get in trouble with innovation is where you say, this one thing is going to change things. Because that's rarely, if ever, true. Every one thing has a domino effect, and it will affect up and down and to the side and in parallel. And so you have to really be able to think about an innovation within the environment that it's in and how will other things affect it or what else is affecting it, creating that. And so I think that concept is really important. And so even though we may say virtual visits, we're not just talking about video over camera, because as soon as we think about it just that way, we actually say, huh, I don't know, Dr. Butt. I don't think that this is going to continue over time. People don't want to do that. They want to see other people in person. They may not have access to video. But if you think of it as, I want the patient to stay in the community where they live, but feel that they are getting that same personal care from me. I'm not going to limit them to not see me. But at the same time, I'm not going to insist that being side by side with me is the best for their care, because you know what? In many cases, it is not. What do they need? And then you start to develop an ecosystem of what does virtual care need? And that is really the innovation, is recognizing it's not just one item. It's how does that whole environment work? Yeah, no, this is uh, you know fascinating if, if you think about it the way you just put it uh, together for us. Um, in terms of it being a domino effect and, um, you know, how one technology or how one um, iterative aspect of a particular technology can have its effect on others is is a fascinating way to think about things. I never sort of thought about innovation in that in that fashion. So thank you for introducing me to that concept or that that thought process. Um, so in in terms of in terms of how you deliver innovation, I mean, do you do you have regular um, meetings to talk about concepts and ideas? And is there is there like a, a scoring system where you want to put your your effort and time in, or how, how does this work? I mean, in terms of logistics, yeah, yeah. So the the logistics are, you know, if we think about the American College of Cardiology. Um, we have certain goals and pillars that we're following. And one thing we make sure to do in innovation is run parallel to what the goals of the ACC are. And, you know, the ACC's goals are very easily um, kind of understood because they are focused 
on what is best for the patient and what is the environment we need to create for the patient to do that. And so, you know, as we create innovation, what we recognize is the first and most important thing is to not be siloed. So we are spending most of our time surveying the environment saying, what are the companies that are interested in doing something new? What are the institutions that are doing different things? What does innovation look like around us right now? So we've looked at 600 companies in the past six years. Um, so that is like, that is the daily work. You know, people say, what is your daily work? Our daily work is what is out there? How is it changing cardiology? And then saying, which of these align with the strategic goals of the college and are something that we and what we bring as our value proposition can perhaps help grow. And so let me give you an example. If we're, um, and I can give you a few different examples. Um, maternal mortality, incredible issue in this country, right? Um, somewhat embarrassing to be such a developed country with a rising rate of maternal mortality, one of the highest of any developed countries. And cardiovascular disease is a big part of that. We have really great colleagues in OB and cardio OB in public health, all working together at the government level. What can we do? Well, there are numerous companies that are looking at early diagnosis of preeclampsia in the first trimester. How great would that be if we could really know early on? But that's not going to exist alone. So as we look at companies like that, we then also say, what is the educational structure? How can we get into the communities where these people live and are not getting enough prenatal care and build a model of prenatal care around this one technology. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's again, taking that innovation and saying, what is the environment in which it needs to belong? And then can we bring that whole model there? A, a very different one would be looking at uh, the use of virtual reality for training. So in orthopedics, uh, in, in several other areas, and now increasingly in cardiology, you can actually do virtual training. And one thing we talk about is, the 10,000 hours, I'm going back to Malcolm Gladwell because he's in my brain from yesterday, but, but the 10,000 hours, how do you get 10,000 hours if you are in a country somewhere else where you don't have those many surgeries that you can do, where you don't have the opportunity to be at a high volume center? Um, you're going to do the best you can, but imagine if you could virtually train wearing an Oculus headset and be able to then say, I did 180 virtually and I did 20 in person, you're going to be a better um, interventionalist if you do it. So, so there's so many different things, but then that also comes with education, education of the community, finding the right patients, building the technology, teaching the cardiologist, and then shared decision-making with the patient so that they understand that it is good that they were trained with 180 virtual and 20 in person, because right now, that's better than what they would have gotten without that system. And so lots of different ways to think about it, but 600 companies, we look around, we think of what is the environment, what are the pressing issues of today, um, and uh, and how can we make a, a difference there, and then engage with those companies um, and uh, and then start to work together with them to say, let's see what this looks like. Yeah, incredible. So uh, the, the one thing that I was thinking when you were describing, you know, the preeclampsia project, and the maternal mortality project, which you know sounds incredible, um, was how do you um, deal with um, disappointments during innovation, and how do you reconcile and still have the enthusiasm? Um, and you know, I, before you answer, I'll 
I'll, 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 I'll tell you my little secret. My little secret is, um, you know, success is moving from one failure to the other with the same enthusiasm. And, and that's what I keep telling myself each time, um, you know, I, I fail, which, which is a very relative term for, for people who, who use that term. But I'm, I'm going to have you answer that question for me. Yeah, no, uh, you know, I think you have to be resilient. And one of the most important things that, you know, I tell my daughters this, I have, I have two daughters, they're, they're nine and 15, um, is that we will make decisions and we'll go for things. And despite how hard we work or how much we believe, sometimes that won't necessarily end up being true or be the way things happen. Um, and all you can do is take a step back. Yes, learn from it. Absolutely. But also forgive yourself a little bit rather than berate yourself for having tried something like that. Oftentimes in what many of us are, which is a little bit of a type A driven person, when something doesn't go right, so I should have, right? And those should have words shouldn't come out. It's yes, I'm going to learn from this. Yes, I'm going to be resilient and move forward. But I'm also going to take a moment and I'm going to allow myself to be a little bit sad that this didn't work out. And I'm going to forgive myself for not for failing, but for that feeling I know that I have, which is this, it didn't happen because of me. That's not true. Um, and it really just requires some internal forgiveness. Like you worked really hard on it. That's great. This wasn't going to happen, but that's not on you right now. Let's learn what we can from it. And then let's move on. Now, sometimes, and I don't tell my daughters this yet, it is on you. <laughs> and that's where the learning comes in, right? Because you learn, had we done this slightly differently, perhaps this would have, you can't know for sure. We don't have a parallel universe where we can test this experiment out, but you can start to learn some things. But the first thing you need to do is you really need to take a step back and say, okay, I accept that this isn't going to happen. And I've got to be okay with that. And then I can learn. I can't rush into learning when I am frustrated that it didn't work. That space needs to be given. And I guess that's the one advice that I would give um, to people who are listening when things don't go your way in innovation is, yes, you need to be resilient. Yes, you can learn for it. But first, just take a little space and then revisit it because you will learn and see so much more when that emotion um, you know, is a little bit more uh, taken care of and and you can really put your whole self back into it. And that can't happen right away. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, the, as they say in spirituality, right, the, the tincture of time almost heals everything. Um, and it's it's important, right? And And that brings me to the next point of, you know, having the patience and the grit or the resilience to um, accept what didn't go your way and still be, um, I, I, I'm not sure if attached or married is the right word, but, you know, have, have faith and have belief in the idea um, and, you know, back your instincts up and, and sort of think about the, the same problem in a different way. Um, how, how, so I'm, and and maybe you've uh, maybe you've you've come across this concept that I just described, but I think it would really be helpful for me as well as the listenership to sort of m- maybe put learn from an example. So I'm going to go back to the early days of video visits for me for a second. Um, 
I was certain the video visits were a good idea for a subset of patients, right? And, and take it back, take it back in your mind to pre-COVID. You have to force yourself back there for a second. Um, but I was also certain that if when patients needed their fourth surgery, right, at age 32, that was a conversation that needed to happen Norman Rockwell style, sitting next to the patient, holding their hand, telling them that it was time. That is part of how I defined myself, who I was as a, as a physician and a cardiologist and a healer. And so I would not use video visits for those kind of conversations because who would, right? Just who would, why that's just so impersonal, putting a computer between that, like, how can you connect? And, uh, I had a patient who needed to learn that information and mind you, he, he probably knew, right? So, um, but, but the time had come and I insisted and I had my office staff also insist that he had to come in to see me. And, and this went on for a period of two weeks. It was almost an argument back and forth between my office and this patient of scheduling. And finally said, I, I'm not going to come in. Why don't you have her talk to me over video? And I said, fine. I still wasn't going to tell him over video, but I was going to explain and kind of hint at why he needed to come in. And I was taught by my patient. He said, Dr. Bott, you need to, to listen. I need you to tell me what I know you feel is very important. I need you to tell me now. I need you to tell me today. And I need you to tell me while I'm here at home with my spouse and my children because they are the reason that I'm going to be able to hear what you say and agree to it. And I was, I was wrong, right? <laughs> I mean, that's one of those times where I was wrong. I thought that by not innovating in this moment, that I was saving the relationship I had, I was going down to the depths of what it meant to be a doctor. Um, and I wasn't listening to the fact that in fact, that is exactly what he needed me to do. And since then, I will tell you, there have been patients who've said, I want that video visit because um, when you give me some news and then I smell the hospital, the alcoholic smell of the hospital becomes stronger when you know you have to have an intervention again. I've had people who've told me after I tell this story now, yep, doctor, about the second time you told me about a surgery, I cried the four hours home to Maine from Boston. I, I wish I didn't have to do that alone, right? And so once you recognize something, then you see it everywhere. And so I guess I use that as an example because you're going to come up against what we could deem failures or things that didn't work the way you thought they would many times. And it's not just going to be because you're innovating and doing something new and different. It can sometimes be because you were doing what we were born to do, what we were taught to do, what I thought I took a Hippocratic oath to do. And in fact, even that ended up being perhaps not right, right? Uh, and we don't like saying wrong, but in that case, it was the wrong thing. Um, and so I guess that's just an example of where it doesn't even matter how innovative you think you're being. This is true for everything you want to do. You may believe something is right and you do it. Now, what did we learn, right? After some space, I learned that I needed to listen to my patient about how they wanted to be told things. And I had perhaps carried a concept of how I thought the relationship was supposed to be rather than asking them what their relationship with me was. And so that was a new concept for me. And so now I, I ask all sorts of things and, and I've turned that into 
one of the ways I teach on rounds, right? When we talk about things with patients, how do we ask them what this interaction means to them and how do you fit that into your day and the way you think about relationships? So again, I think um, that's just one example of the fact that yes, you can have the greatest new innovation, it may not work, but then you also may do things that you think are exactly right. And, and they all come from that same concept, which is, but I thought I was doing what was best. And we're, we're generally almost always doing that, right? And that's what makes it a little bit hard to fail because you failed despite the fact that you really thought that was right. And that's why I say again, that tincture of time, but also that self-forgiveness, that little bit of, I should have known. Don't say I should have known. Just forgive a little space and then learn. Yeah, no, that's that's just, I think universally, that's just such a great tip, you know, self-forgiveness and self-empathy. Because, um, you know, unless you have self-empathy, you, you truly, I don't think you truly can practice empathy for, for others or on others. And it's it's sort of, it's like everything else you do, right? Whether it's in medicine or whether it's in, procedural cardiology or whether it's in life, I think the more you practice it, the better you get at it, but you have to start practicing it because it, at least to me, it never came intuitively. It does not come intuitively. No, that's true for a lot of people. You know, it's interesting as you talk about innovation, so I'll tell you something different. So let's go all the way to the other end of AI, right? Let's just go, go. So, so we talked about the doctor patient relationship, right? So now let's move for a second to, to AI. So the idea that I go into a clinic room, and I see a patient with diagnosis X, or let's say coarctation of the aorta. And in that 30 minutes, what happens? Well, I ask them how they're feeling. I examine them. I may kind of look at the most recent guidelines, update their imaging, make a plan, do a little bit of general prevention. What could I do? I could look at their wearable data and see what's been happening with that. I could get a sense of their social determinants of health and whether or not they're actually going to take the meds that I'm prescribing. Um, I could know not only the guidelines and get them a little bit faster and cleaner, but even some recent studies that are high quality that are available right there on the computer in the room. Um, and then I could get, you know, the patient's own reported outcomes, not only in the office, perhaps, you know, but as things were moving along in the past six months since I saw them. And if I could do all of that, I would be a better physician for that patient at that moment, right? Now, not saying we're not good physicians, but we don't have all that data, even though we have all that data. And so you immediately think, well, this is great. Let's use artificial intelligence to be able to get all that data, bring it together. Yes, sometimes the data is messy. So we need to have data standards. We need to clean it. These are the other things when you say, what does the ACC work on? This is what we work on. What do data standards look like? We wrote those with the Consumer Technology Association. Um, how do we put them in? How do we assess it? And people said, no. In general, people have been saying no to artificial intelligence. Just, just a no. Sometimes there's an explanation, many times there's not. And so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about why? Why would we not want all that information? And I think, you know, part of it is the unknown. Part of it is not wanting to get something wrong. A large part of it may actually be the word artifice. The word artifice means deceit. And so we are kind of defining this in a way that, that doesn't actually seem to work, right? Which is calling it artificial in the beginning. Now, if you go back to IBM when they had their first computers, um, they actually talked about artificial intelligence. And they said the computer is going to act like a human. 
Well, that's not what we want. We don't want computers to replace humans today, nor do any of us who are innovating in AI think that's the case. What we want those to do is recognize patterns and take large swaths of data that the human eye just can't see and give us something and then collaborate with us. Say, hey, I'm noticing these trends, doc, about this patient that you're about to see for 30 minutes. Here it is for these different areas, whether it's their wearable data or their blood pressure cuff at home or their social determinants of health. I'm, I think this might be helpful to you. And then you as a physician say, yes, that's helpful. Thank you. Or you say, no, I think I may know better for some reasons, but let me teach you why I know better. And the computer can iterate. Um, or it's something brand new and you go, wow, discovery. You picked up something about them living in a food desert and having higher salt foods because they're more preservatives while I'm trying to treat their hypertension for coart. And so what opportunity? And so we've started to call it collaborative intelligence. And the reason I bring this up is I think it's incredibly important when you're innovating to understand that if you're trying to change the way something is done, you have to see what people are hearing and seeing when you give your message. And if we keep calling things artificial intelligence and not explain what your clinic visit could look like a year from now, why is that important? You will still retain autonomy. We are not replacing you. If you can't explain that, if you can't use words correctly, it's hard to get people on board with your innovative concept. So I would say that's one way to help alleviate some of the failures you may have, which is a lot of failures. You know, some failures are just logistic, but others are in interpretation, communication, and messaging, and getting people to understand how the environment's going to change. And so I think if you pre-think about messaging and what people might hear and what might scare them, um, that's one way to hopefully try and limit the number of times you fail at getting something done. Yeah, no, what a what a fascinating example. Um, I mean, I, I really like the word um, or the term, I should say, collaborative intelligence. Um, and as you were describing that example of, you know, social determinants of health being picked by artificial intelligence as you're trying to tackle hypertension in a patient with coarctation, it that just that just sounded like symphony to me, like. You know, I because there's so much there's so much that you could do in that 30 minute visit or 40 minute visit, but like you know you feel that like those 30 minutes just go by like they just slip by, and if you know collaborative intelligence could sort of help you, you know, garner more information on how your patient's living and in what conditions is your patient living, and you somehow then get the the broader or the fuller picture of, of his or her life that can actually then assist you to make better medical decisions for that patient. Like that's just symphony to my ears. Is that is that still like a distant future kind of reality or is that or you think it's it's coming? It's no, this is this is exactly what we're trying to bring and bring soon. You know, um we are you know, we're now working with a whole lot of different people are working on this, right? But but we need to have social determinants of health as part of how we are assessing patients. We need public health um, to be an important part of healthcare delivery. And we've always had medicine and public health as two very separate units. So, you know, my husband's actually a professor of public health 
um, at a Northeastern, which which means, mind you, during COVID, where everybody else's house was quiet, you know, our kids were like, why are you two working more than you've ever worked before? And we were like, because we're validated, you know, because what we do, what we do is actually making a difference. But um, but it's always been two very different arenas. And I think it's time to to bring those together. So so social determinants of health, I think are going to become essential. And then I really do believe that we are on the cusp of, of changing how we look at data. We will have vital signs in the home. You know, what we do right now is episodic care. We've talked about this before you and I, right? Which is, I see somebody twice a year for a disease that they have 24-7, 365. And that doesn't per se make sense, but what if we could watch you continuously and when there is a change from your baseline, then there is an alert, there is a review, right? And there can be a process. There can be a team who looks at it. Um, it can be a closed loop and hypertension management in the community that only comes in when necessary. There's so many different ways you can set up the systems and probably many different ways you should based on where you live and what the current system looks like. But we mold that to our current system. And so I think we're going to have a lot more data that is taken, used, and processed and then elevated to a level where by the time it comes to the cardiac team, there is a new base of understanding upon which we are able to use our 35 years of training, right? <laughs> which, which is, I think, the right way to do it. Um, I still look at Excel spreadsheets every Monday of all of the Bluetooth blood pressure cuffs that are out there on my coarctation patients. And yet I'm the chief innovation officer. We, we have work to do. We're not there yet. But I do think that those Excel spreadsheets will soon be something that is taken by somebody else, processed, and the alerts are given to me. And, and mind you, it's not going to say 140 over 90 is bad for the whole country, right? It's going to say, hey, on average, your blood pressure is in this range, but now you are 20% out of that range. That is when, now this is personalized medicine, but at scale. So um, I am certain that it's coming. Uh, I think the easy ones are the vital signs in the home because those remote monitoring devices are kind of well understood and we already have companies that have systems to work on those. I think our ability to pull through some guidelines and additional information to do a little bit of clinical support, not necessarily clinical decision support, just clinical support. Here's the base of what you need to know for today's visit on this patient. Um, I think those two are probably going to be the first two to go. Um, wearables are a little bit further behind. We have a little bit more work to do. Um, and then the idea of really going deeper into research and how things are changing and the most modern changes, that's an area that's constantly moving. I think that might be the last in that, in that set of things we talk about. Yeah. So no, th this has been such a fascinating conversation and I've learned so much, um, in terms of, you know, for the final few minutes for the podcast, um, I'm going to ask you uh, some of some of the personal questions. And, and and that's for someone who wants to emulate a career like yourself or wants to get into innovation while also having uh, a clinical practice. How do you how do you manage to do? I mean, of course, in part, it's driven by, you know, what wakes you up in the morning and what you're truly passionate about and, 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 and that's commendable that you can create that space of Ikigai, you know, how you, you have those Venn diagrams and that, that, central, that central quadrant is the Ikigai of, of your life. Um, how, how do you, how do you balance, uh, you know, doing innovation, 
having a clinical practice, uh, you know, doing research um, and also being involved nationally with the professional society. How do you do that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, a few things. I, I think the first is you will know when you are practicing clinically uh, the areas where you think we can do better. And and those areas are your passion, if you will, right? Um, and many of us will do this thing where we say, well, I'm passionate about X and I'm going to do a lot of research in it. And that's great. And then you enjoy the research and you do more. But for innovation, it's oftentimes where you see something, you say, but that could be better, right? Not just I'm interested in it. That's a different innovation. That's scientific innovation. But but the innovation in care delivery, which is really what we're talking about, and that's what digital health is. That's what you know AI is enabling. Innovation in care delivery um, is an opportunity to say, I think this could be better. And you will very quickly notice that the same thing will have a little place in the back of your mind where you will just be bothered by it again and again. That's your thing. That's your passion. And so I'd say first thing is just think about it. What are the things that really get you going? Um, and then the question becomes, how do you get there? So there's actually structured ways to get there now that didn't exist before. There are innovation fellowships that people can do. If you really want to do bio design, there are schools of bio design. There are programs where you can go where if you want to be an entrepreneur and create something and you have an idea and you want to make something of it, they will pair you with an engineer. You will have a business friend too. You will have a little group um, and you'll be able to do things. So if you really have an entrepreneurial idea and you want to run with it, you can look to Stanford Biodesign. We had a program here at Harvard MIT. Um, uh, down in Austin, they have a program. I mean, there, there are many. Um, Miami's got some great programs now too. So you can train to do that. But otherwise, if you're really saying, I want to change how healthcare is delivered, you probably have an innovation group close to where you are, whether it's in your own organization or through something like the ACC um, and your chapter. And you say, look, this is something that I've been working on, and I want to get an idea of how to make it better. Um, and then what you do is you dive in. So we are so fortunate to be able to have everything at our fingertips right now. Um, and there is more reading and more exposure than you could ever imagine. And so I would tell people, um, start to look at, you know, have um, Forbes up, have Market Watch up, look at TechCrunch, look at Wired, look at all the different places where there may be something that's interesting to you. And then you will start to see ideas gel of crossing silos. You want to cross silos early if you want to be an innovator. So you want to suddenly learn how different things are working um, so that you have an idea of how different silos work and how they come together. I don't think we're in a place where innovation will happen only within medicine and only within clinical medicine, other than scientific advances. So with healthcare delivery, you're going to have to cross silos. And I suggest you do that early. So find a thing that really um, motivates you. And sometimes that's a little bit of a, of a irritating motivation, right? This has got to be better. I can't believe we can't do better. Um, find what that thing is. Um, think about whether or not there are people around you that can help you do that. If you really have an idea and you want to run with it and you need an engineer, et cetera, look for the biodesign places, get some formal training. And, um, and lastly, really start to spread out across silos and learn about that one. You know, it's so great that I'm on your podcast. Um, parallax, right? Look at it from different directions. Look at that same question from non-clinical directions as well and understand that environment. Start to get the 360 on it. Um, and I think it's a great place to start. And then always, you know, feel free to reach out to, to me and others who do this. 
um, to help you continue to, to create that path. You know, we hope to have more exposure starting all the way with med students and college students through residents and fellows um, about how to get into the innovation space. But until you see that um, coming to some place near you, just feel free to reach out to us because um, we are always excited to find other people who are slightly disagreeable like ourselves. Yeah, no, you couldn't have said it any better. Um, any closing remarks? Uh, Ami, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time late this evening. No, this is great. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for what you do. You are an innovator. This is not something that existed before uh, four years ago. Um, and again, you just you had a passion and you had an idea and uh, you convinced people of it. And, you know, now there's there's no turning back. There's there's years upon years of this moving ahead. Um, I guess the only closing thought that that I will leave you with is I think these conversations are actually really important. Um, I find that every time I get a chance to speak with others and hear their questions, it makes me rethink how I'm approaching innovation. And so, um, you know, if you're out there and you're listening, you're already an innovator, um, if you, especially if you've stuck through this long. Um, but uh, but talk to more people and, and don't be afraid to say the things that are a little bit crazy out loud and get responses because you'll find that there will be people who want to help you get your crazy thing done because it is the right thing to do. Well, great. Uh, thanks again, Ami. This is this is a great way to end the podcast. And, you know, this, this should air soon. And I'll tag you on social media. And, you know, for those listening, uh, please drop us a feedback. Uh, you know, I, I tend to read all of them and, and you know, try to iterate and, and improve and get more guests that, that you want to hear from. Uh, you know, you could um, review us on um, SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts and, and please rate us as well. Uh, thanks again and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.